Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant, also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. A quick disclaimer, the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. This is episode seven. Today, we're going to be talking about diet options and diving more deeply into how to nourish yourself with healing in mind. Mick, how's it going today? It's going great. I'm ready to get started. Good. We are really excited to be sharing the day with Agalie Jacob. She is a mom, a passionate health coach, and a Real Foods registered dietitian. She currently lives in Canada. She's been all over the world. She's also a co-host of Real Food Mamas podcast and is the author of the book Digestive Health with Real Food. Agalie, thank you for taking time to share with us on the topic of diet and welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. We're both really big fans of your work. We're so happy that you could be here to share with us because I think you have so much unique perspective on the gut and food. We're excited to share our peeps. Thank you. So our first question is, do you have any personal experience with chronic illness that inspired you to go into the field of nutrition? Oh my God, I think you know the answer already, but yeah, to share with your audience, yes, it's interesting because I think that many of us trying to learn more about health, nutrition, and trying to share everything we learn, it's usually because we've been through some chronic illnesses and health issues ourselves, and we just want to make sure that other people don't go through everything we've been through and to make sure that they find the help they need to feel better. In my case, it goes back to a a few years ago. Well, as you mentioned, I've been a registered dietitian for 10 years now, but for the first part of my career, I was practicing as a conventional registered dietitian following the food pyramid and, um, you know, eat your whole grains and don't eat fat and that kind of thing. But at some point, I was just not feeling like this was the best career path for me. So something wasn't working. So to make 
like a long story short, I decided to quit my job and go backpacking in, in South America, travel and to try to find myself and what I wanted to do with my life. And it seems like <laughs> I got the answer I was looking for, although not in the form that I was expecting it to come. I got very sick with a parasite infection, which was followed with other type of infection like SIBO, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. You know, I had never really experienced digestive issues and even things like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. I had patients uh, presenting with that while I was working as a registered dietitian, but I I didn't have many tools to help them. And frankly, I didn't understand how, how... uh, yeah, how miserable you can feel when you experience those symptoms on a daily basis. But karma caught up with me and I got to experience it all, feeling headaches, skin rash, a lot of random symptoms, insomnia, um, lethargy, and a lot of the digestive issues, of course, that go with that. And I did diet, sometimes it would get better, sometimes not really, sometimes it would work, but only for a short period of time. So I really researched and experimentation with myself to uh, try to heal myself and was able to do that. I helped other people decided to share that that message, all the tips and uh, strategies that I had learned in my book. Uh, so that's <laughs> a long story made short for you. <laughs> No, that's great, Aglae. Thanks so much for sharing. I think a lot of the best practitioners have personal experience with healing. It's different than just a doctor learning about SIBO as like this medical thing. You understand physically what that feels like and what the treatment was like and what the diet was like and everything. So Mm -hmm. I think that's great. You can be so much more empathetic. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have a question. How did you discover real food and what was that turning point like when you discovered, wait a minute, I've been teaching this one way and there's another way and do I want to get into this? Like, how is this possible? What what was that like? <laughs> it was actually very, it's still hard to put words in, in how I felt when I reached that turning point, but it happened while I was traveling. As I said, for the first uh, half of my career, uh, I practiced as a conventional registered dietitian and just follow the guidelines and everything. I was taught in school. But because of the lack of results, I was mostly working with people with type 2 diabetes. And I just felt like there had to be more. I was losing faith in the power of food as medicine. And that's what pushed me to, uh, to go travel and just take a break and think about it. Traveling opens your mind to different cultures. And, you know, I was not trapped putting myself in in a box with those guidelines. So I had more opportunities to think. I started listening to different podcasts that I would not have listened to, like uh, Jimmy Moore's podcast and reading different books that were not the books that I would have read uh, while still working as a registered dietitian. Because I have to confess that as a registered dietitian, you think that you are the and all be all (laughs) authority when it comes to nutrition, you you know, you're kind of taught to think that you are the expert on nutrition and, you know, that you pretty much don't have much to learn anymore because you know it all. But uh, taking a break from from that really allowed me to to start looking elsewhere for answers. So that's when it all started. 
and it was really scary at first to to really uh, question everything I had learned. I was also really disappointed in the education I had received. I didn't know what to do. I knew that I wouldn't be able to have a real job as a registered dietitian anymore, a real job in, in her quote, uh, because I knew that I didn't want to go back to uh, having to follow those guidelines and to do what the conventional nutrition dogma was telling me to do. So that was really, really scary. And it's when following my own health issue and um, digging deeper in the research, I saw that there was a lot of evidence base and I started gaining more confidence in that alternative, more holistic way of approaching health and nutrition. So it was a long process uh, for me to be able to feel comfortable with it, to really believe in that approach and to see it firsthand with me and with some of my clients to kind of come out of the closet because I was afraid that I know some other registered dietitian who started uh, proning a different way of eating have gotten into trouble with uh, licensing uh, boards and things like that. So I was really scared about that and losing my license. But I knew from talking with those other dietitians that if you can back up what you say with evidence, you can get into trouble, even though your approach is different than the food pyramid. And I saved all this studies that I read and I have hundreds and thousands of them on my computer. So I know I feel prepared and confident that, you know, nothing can happen uh, with my license. Uh, I'll keep it. I have everything I need to uh, defend myself. You know, now I have the second part of my career. Now the last five years working with that different approach, I feel like I'm getting more experience, more confidence, and I have a lot of cases and, uh, and clients' results to show that it really works. Amazing, Agali. Thank you for sharing with us. You were really uh, a little bit of a revolutionist taking on some huge risks to do what you were doing. It's so interesting to hear about your moment of frustration and, and how you left that conventional approach. Do you feel like there's a movement more and more for RDs to go in the same direction you're going? Do you feel like uh, there's a shift happening? There is definitely a shift because back then in 2010, when I would Google paleo dietitians, gluten-free dietitians and stuff like that, there wasn't very many people. I, I found actually two other dietitians at that time working with Rob Wolf, Stephanie Grunke and um, uh, Amy Kubel. Uh, but that was it. But since then, I founded uh, a network of paleo-friendly dietitians or more open-minded registered dietitians and that group is up to 350 RDs last time I checked. So it's a slow Hooray! growth. And I, I know there are more out there. I just need to, to find them. But it is definitely growing slowly but surely. <laughs> Super rad. And I love that you took that upon yourself to create community. That's something that I've really enjoyed about your work is how you don't just put information out there, you want to further the movement. And, uh, and that's really cool. Thank you. <laughs> So let's talk about elimination diets. Um, this is something that you are for sure an expert in. Our listeners are going to be familiar with the autoimmune protocol because that's what Angie and I teach, mm -hmm. but less familiar with the modifications for those with gut issues, which is something I know you know a lot about. So let's talk a little bit about what AIP is. So that's what we use to call the autoimmune protocol. And then let's talk about these different modifications for people that are troubleshooting um, these often coexisting gut infections. 
Uh-huh. So the autoimmune protocol is one form of elimination diets. There are just so many different versions of an elimination diet that we can do depending on what symptoms and problems people present with. But with the autoimmune protocol, to me, um, the biggest food categories that we eliminate are the ones that are already eliminated with the paleo diet. So grains and dairy, legumes, soy, peanuts, sugar, processed food, vegetable oils. But on top of of that, we also eliminate some foods that would be considered paleo and real food, but that can be problematic with people with an autoimmune condition, especially because it tends to to stem from a a leaky gut, uh, increased intestinal permeability, and that makes people more sensitive to those specific foods, which include nuts and seeds, eggs, uh, as well as nightshades. Nightshade is a category of uh, vegetables and some fruits that includes eggplants, uh, tomatoes, um, regular potatoes, all types of peppers, except for black pepper. Bell peppers would be included in the pepper category. There's also goji berries and uh, ground cherries and even some herbs like ashwagandha, which might be in some supplements. So it is really important to be aware of all of these little things if you want to do the autoimmune protocol, right? Uh, But that can be really, really helpful for so many people with uh, various kind of autoimmune condition. Yeah, the AIP is, you know, what we recommend as a first line for anyone that's been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. This is a great place to start, whether it's jumping in cold turkey or doing a really slow transition like Angie advocates in her program. She does six weeks um, and people go into it slow. But we do know that there are a lot of other things Mm -hmm. people can do with diet. And this is something that we didn't cover in detail in our book just because It is so exhausting. And Mm -hmm. to give you an example of how exhausting it is, your whole book (laughs) is basically uh, an elimination diet guide for all of these different modifications people could make for gut issues. So could you tell us about some of the things that people could be troubleshooting with further issues with the diet? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I think the AIP, as you said, is a really great starting point. But for people still experiencing digestive issues or those with really chronic and severe digestive symptoms, if they can add uh, some of the tips I will mention to the AIP, then uh, they can get improvements a lot quicker. But of course, it will be a little bit harder to do because there are more foods to take out. And I know the term elimination diet, we think of, well, we'll have to eliminate a bunch of foods, but I really like to think of it in a more positive way. And I like to remind people that the word elimination is really uh, to eliminate your symptoms. So that's really the, the goal of an elimination diet to get rid of your symptoms by doing some dietary modifications. And then we can build back your diet to something suited for you and uh, your unique body physiology. So some of these foods that many people with digestive issues might need to consider eliminating uh, if they do an elimination diet are those containing FODMAPs. So I don't know if you mentioned the word FODMAPs at all in your podcast so far or in your book. No, give us a definition. <laughs> right. Tell the audience about these scary FODMAPs. 
<laughs> so FODMAPs, that's F-O-D-M-A-P. And uh, the, the acronym stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyol. So that's not very helpful for most people. Uh, in short, what it means is to category a food containing short chain fermentable carbohydrates. So we all have, you know, many foods contain carbohydrates, including uh, potatoes and fruits and uh, even sugar. But some of these carbohydrates contain FODMAPs. The difference with other types of carbohydrates is that they are um, really prone to being fermented in your gut, especially if you have some type of imbalance in your gut flora. Um, so for people with IBS or uh, with SIBO or another type of gut infection, eating these foods can result in bloating and gas and belching and abdominal uh, pain and cramping and even changes in bowel movement, whether it be diarrhea or constipation or both, actually. So it really depends on how your own body reacts. But let's talk about where we can find those fun maps to make it a bit more concrete. Because if you experience some of these symptoms, then it's a clue that maybe fun maps could be an issue for you. So part of these fun maps, uh, we have lactose, but lactose is usually already taken out if you're following the AIP protocol. Other than that, there are many fruits and vegetables that are AIP friendly, but do unfortunately contain FODMAPs. That includes asparagus, uh, sugar, snap peas, garlic, onions are big ones, uh, artichoke, broccoli, cauliflower, sweet potatoes, uh, mushrooms. So a lot of really healthy vegetables, unfortunately. And uh, with fruits, we have apples, pears, a lot of stone fruits like apricots, nectarines, peaches, and also some melons, especially watermelon. Some nuts like almonds and uh, cashews, pistachios also contain some fun maps. So it's not that these foods are bad, but it is that if your gut flora is not healthy, strong, and balanced, then it can be problematic. Uh, your gut flora may just start um, fermenting those fun maps, and this is what can cause a lot of unpleasant symptoms for many people dealing with digestive issues, unfortunately. Agle, if someone's experiencing symptoms, like if someone's listening and they're going, oh, wow, I get super bloated whenever I eat onions or garlic, which is really common. Mm -hmm. What do you suggest that they do? Do you suggest that they just take out the FODMAPs and eat that way? Or is there anything that you recommend that, you know, that red flag leads to? Yes, it, it really depends on so many factors. As you know, it's always very individual. But depending on the severity and frequency of the issues, I think it's always a good idea to try doing an elimination diet, especially if you think that you know that garlic and onions, for example, are causing issues. You can try taking them out for three, uh, around three weeks is a good uh, period of time. Some people may see uh, improvements if fun maps like garlics and onions are an issue within two weeks. For some, it may take longer, four to six weeks. So it really depends on how long you've been dealing with those issues, how frequent, how severe they are. But it's a good idea to try taking those foods out for a certain period of time. And if things improve, then it's a really, really big clue that fun maps, at least uh, some of the fun map food might be causing issue and excessive intestinal fermentation and that you have some form of gut dysbiosis or imbalance in your gut flora going on. 
you know, there are just many different fun maps and you can do a full, completely low fun map diet and eliminate them all. Or you can really target the fun map foods that you eat the most of. It, it really depends. And it, that's why it's usually best to work with someone who has some experience in that field. The good news is that if you're suffering from digestive issues, uh, even while following the AIP protocol, there's still other things you can do to try to improve the way you feel in your digestive health. Yeah, that's all really great information. And um, I tell people the same thing, you know, when they try a low FODMAP diet and they feel really good, that tells them a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of information. Let's talk a little bit about the underlying condition mm-hmm. that usually goes with FODMAP intolerance without going into crazy detail. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the most common reason why people aren't tolerating these FODMAPs. Yeah, so if you find yourself reacting to some of the FODMAP foods, it is definitely important to do more testing to try to figure out what the root cause is because although eliminating FODMAPs might help you feel better, it's not a long-term solution. Oftentimes, the reason why people react to FODMAP is because they have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 85% of people with IBS or IBS type of symptoms like bloating, diarrhea, and constipation actually have SIBO. That could be defined as a chronic infection. It's not necessarily that you have a pathogenic or disease-causing bacteria in your gut, but it's just that they are not located where they they should be. Most of the bacteria in our gut should be in our large intestine, our colon. But with SIBO, as the name says, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestines. And although we are meant to have some bacteria in there, too much uh, can be an issue and can result in excessive fermentation and all the symptoms that are too often associated with IBS. Agali, I dealt with SIBO. I had to treat it three times. I'm a celiac, so it's really common for Mm -hmm. folks with intestinal issues like celiac disease. And I want you to know that your FODMAP list, your paleo-friendly FODMAP list was super helpful in guiding me as I went through my treatment process. Like you said, it's important to get diagnosis and and treat the underlying cause. You can't do just diet alone, but, you know, diet helped so much with symptoms and your guidance was really helpful in that. I'm so glad to hear that. Sorry, you had to go through that three times, though. But yeah, their recurrence rate is unfortunately very high, but hopefully you're you're free of it for now. Yes, I'm free. I I finally conquered it. (laughs) Maybe... Maybe, Agli, you can tell us about um, a few other kinds of modifications that are out there that can help folks with certain conditions, maybe um, low starch or low histamine. Maybe you can touch on a few of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's start with low starch just very quickly. Um, so with SIBO and some digestive issues, uh, the gut lining may be damaged and some of the digestive enzymes that are usually uh, produced and released in the gut to digest starches and starches is another type of carbohydrate. So we see fun maps for a type of carbohydrate, but starches is another type of carbohydrates that can cause issues in some people. And uh, because of that inflammation and damage, damage and uh, deficiency in terms of digestive enzymes within the, the digestive system, then uh, those starches may not be d- digested and broken down as they should. If they're not broken down, they won't be absorbed in your body. So that's 
one thing, you won't be getting that energy. And the second thing is that those undigested starches will stay in the gut and be fermented by your gut flora, especially if it's not balanced. So that can also contribute to many people's digestive issues. Where can we find starches? We find those in, in grains, which if you are on the EIP, they are already out of your diet, but there are also a lot of AIP-friendly foods that are rich in starches, including uh, sweet potatoes, winter squashes, uh, cassava, plantains. Those types of foods are all a uh, source of starches. So for some people, they may find that they do best without these foods. And again, it really depends on the root cause of your digestive issues and uh, difficulty to handle starch can also be due to SIBO or or just too much inflammation and damage to, to your gut lining, which can be healed in time and tolerance can usually be improved in time, but uh, it's important to be aware of that. And the other um, group of food that you pointed to, Angie, were the um, histamine foods. So those foods can also uh, trigger the release of a lot of histamine within the gut, which can cause inflammation. And a lot of the same digestive symptoms we were just talking about so that's the thing with digestive issues. Um, many, many different foods and, and factors can cause the same kind of symptoms. So that's why we really have to be a detective experimenting with different versions of an elimination diet and doing some testing to figure out what's happening and what is causing the symptoms so you can heal and feel better without being on an elimination diet for the rest of your life. Histamine-producing foods, again, within the healthy, real foods that might be part of the AIP diet, they can be um, fish and seafood, especially that the canned fish or smoked fish. So those are really healthy food, but uh, histamine is released really quickly within the fish. It's just the protein itself that's part of the fish that tends to do that. There are some of them, what we refer to as stronger uh, tasting vegetables. Uh, many of them are nightshades, but some of them are not, like spinach, uh, mushrooms, uh, dried fruits can be very high, avocados, fermented food also can be really high in histamine. So that's really unfortunate because sometimes those fermented food like kombucha or sauerkraut, kimchi can be really helpful to help you improve the health of your gut flora. But if you are sensitive to histamine, that might be one of the many reasons why fermented foods or probiotics may not agree with you. So again, just like fun maps, we can't look at a food and know whether it will contain fun maps or not. And it's the same with histamine. You really need to get some list and some help to try to figure out whether your intolerances are pointing in any of these directions. So much helpful information for folks out there in our audience who know that they probably need a little bit more modification, a little bit more tweaking, but they're not sure where to begin. You just gave so many helpful clues. Maybe you could also give us some recommendations for nutrient density that everyone, no matter what healing diet they choose, can implement. Oh, that's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Ours too. So, well, there are just so many foods out there. And, you know, it's one thing to follow an elimination diet and to get rid of the foods that might be contributing to your symptoms and to a leaky gut and to autoimmunity. But if you really want to make sure you are able to heal and feel as good as you deserve and should be feeling as quickly as possible, I think that including those nutrient-dense food can make a, a 
big difference. And I am a big fan of those. I call them superfoods. I don't like the word superfoods because I think it's used uh, not always in the best way, especially in the media when, you know, there's a new berry and then... Yeah, there's a lot of marketing hype. Yeah. (laughs) But I I believe in the true superfoods that Mother Nature has been giving us and that our ancestors have been eating and thriving on for for generations and generations and even uh, hundreds of thousands of years. So those foods that I really uh, like to recommend my clients take if they are really serious about healing is homemade bone broth. And it's really important to stress the the word homemade. You can't get the store-bought broth or uh, the powder form or it has to be made the right way, the traditional way. Another super food that's really really nutrient dense and packed with nutrients that can really help you feel better more quickly are organ meats and especially liver. And of course, a lot of people are afraid to eat liver. Um, A lot of people think that it stores toxins and things like that, but it does metabolize toxins, but it usually doesn't store them. Toxins are usually stored in the fat of the animal. So uh, liver, there's no excuse for not eating liver. And you can choose liver from uh, pastured, raised, grass-fed animals, organic, because that will be more nutrient-dense and uh, there will be uh, fewer of the things that you might be afraid of. I must say that I I don't like the taste particularly, but I do it as a liver pate and uh, it's it's not too bad on cucumber slices or plantain chips. So that's a good way to, to get it in. Maybe a third favorite superfood would be uh, cold water, fatty fish because they're really high in omega-3, which are so important to decrease inflammation in our body. Some people prefer to get fish oil so they don't have to eat fish, but whole fish provides a lot more than omega-3s. There's also selenium and other uh, nutrients that are so important for our health too. So I really encourage people to eat the whole food as much as possible. There are many others, but those are my, my top three that comes to mind right now. That's awesome. Thank you, Agley. You're definitely a girl after our own heart. <laughs> I 100% agree. And, you know, for anyone on the, the fence about introducing things like bone broth, you know, it's scary when you have never made it before. Same thing with the liver. If you've never eaten it before. I mean, I was vegan for 10 years before I started transitioning in the liver for the first time. And even fish, a lot of people don't eat fish and they ignore that part, but really we can't stress enough how important it is increasing nutrient density. People that are successful healing their bodies really understand the concept that their body needs that raw material to heal and get better. That is super important and really awesome advice. So as our last question, we would just like to know if you have encountered any new research or findings about nutrition that you found interesting or surprising that you could share with us. Yeah, maybe I can just talk a bit going back to fun maps because this is has been a big part of our conversation today. And I said that going low fun map or at least eliminating some of the high fun map foods can really help many people feel better in getting rid of the bloat and uh, decreasing diarrhea and constipation and other symptoms like that. But there are new studies showing that being on a low FUNMAP diet for too long can actually decrease the diversity of our gut flora, which is not necessarily a good thing in the long term. And the reason for that is that although those FUNMAPs can cause problems if you have an imbalance in your gut flora, they're also very helpful and very important 
to feed our gut flora. They're called um, prebiotics. So probiotics are the, the live bacteria found in some supplements and fermented foods. That's one part uh, that, that is really important to improving the health of our gut flora. But prebiotics means food for the bacteria. So FODMAPs are one type of food that we can give to our gut flora to ensure that the good type of bacteria are growing and that it stays balanced and diverse. So that, that's where it gets complicated for people with digestive issues because we, we want to get relief from those awful symptoms that many people experience on a daily basis and that can prevent them from really enjoying their life and even feeling safe going outside of their home. But at the same time, we want to keep sight of their long-term gut health and making sure that they don't lose too much diversity with their gut flora. So that's where um, it's really important to work with someone qualified because we know that an intolerance to FUNMAP is a clue that people may be dealing with SIBO. It's really important to just not simply go on a low FUNMAP diet as a treatment for your digestive issues because it is not a treatment. Mm -hmm. It's more like a bandage mm -hmm. on your symptom and you need to find the root cause and, and, and address that. <laughs> yeah, that is like spot on advice. I really think that that is important for people to know, especially when people hear about all of these modifications that can be so powerful online, AIP included. And then they they say, you know, I've had actually a lot of emails of people saying, I'm going to do AIP and no FODMAPs and no starch and no histamine just so that I can figure it all out at once. <laughs> and I always email them back and I say, well, first of all, that's not how it works. And second of all, mm -hmm. it's not healthy for your mind to really restrict just because you don't know. You really have to get into the process and, mm -hmm. and wade in slowly and move around and learn something here and learn something there. You know, when I think back, if only if I knew everything that I know now at the beginning, I don't know if the process would have been any different, right? It was like the elimination of foods. And then, you know, a year later, it's the parasite and the overgrowth. And then a year later, it's the histamine intolerance. And, and had doing that all at once, that would have been too much. It's good to go layer by layer. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of these things are clues and they, they nudge us in, in the right direction. And that direction might be finding help or it might be figuring out, I don't have a gut issue. You know, I don't have SIBO. I'm fine with FODMAPs, you know, <laughs> and then remembering to nourish what we do have, you know, long term, because you're right that all of these components are food for the things we want to be cultivating in our gut, too. So finding that balance is hard. Agli, we could probably talk to you all day long. You're like part of our uh, loving real food club. <laughs> um, but we'll say goodbye today. I know you've got a little boy to run around after and yes. lots of great work to do with the real food movement. So thank you so much for being here today with us. Uh, we love talking to ladies like you. We just want to make sure that the audience knows where they can find you at Radicata Medicine. Uh, you guys will be able to find that super, super helpful high FODMAP list that Agli has there. It's really great in guiding your journey. And you should also check out her books, Digestive Health with Real Food <laughs> and Digestive Health with Real Food, the cookbook. Thank you, Agli. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. 
We're honored to have you as a listener, and we hope that you've gained some useful information. You can learn more about the topic we explored today. It's covered in detail in our book, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, along with handy self-assessments, checklists, and other useful resources to put your plan into action. Pick up a copy today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes as this helps others find us. You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag autoimmunewellness. wellness.